You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Have a CD. You should record one. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. We're going we're gonna to read this together. You can follow along in your, in your Bible uh, with me. If you want the same version as me, the English Standard Version, you can use the Pew Bible. Uh, there should be some of those. Um, or you can look on the screen this morning. So we're going we're gonna to read, read chapter 12 of Romans. So if you would, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. One of the, the reasons I want to read the, the 21 verses here is to get context, uh, but also so that you will see the, the difference between Romans 12 and the previous 11 chapters that we've been in. And I think you'll notice right away uh, the difference. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by grace given to me, I say to every one among of you, not to think of yourself himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving one another who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in Spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on your, on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For is it written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is, is truth. You've given it to us. Lord, I pray that, that as we, we take it this morning, we recognize this is, this is your word to us. This is what you desire of us. This is what you want for us. This is what you command of your creatures. These things aren't suggestion. These are your holy standard of righteousness. Lord, I pray that as we start this, this chapter, this next section in the book of Romans, Lord, I pray that you give us grace. Lord, I pray that, that we're not destroyed, but built up, exhorted. Pray that we would see all of this in the truth of the context of the book of Romans. Lord, we pray that you would do a, an amazing work this morning. Give us foundation. Give us understanding. Lord, we pray that if there are those here that don't know you, that haven't placed their faith and trust in you, Lord, I pray that you grant them that. I pray that their, their eyes would be open, that they would respond to you in, in faith and repentance. Lord, we pray that you do an amazing thing this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. As we begin this morning, I'd like to, to put an image in your head. It is a bit graphic. The Bible is a pretty graphic book. It has to do with the posture of sacrifice. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, because we don't often perform sacrifices. In fact, I hope that you never, <laughs> never do that. Um, but this was the way of life during the time the Bible was written. The priest who performed sacrifices, those who watched the sacrifices being performed, knew the posture of sacrifices. They knew when it was going to happen based on the posture of the animal. The priest would be behind the animal, grab its head and pull it back, burying its neck. It had to be done by somebody who was strong. For a large and strong animal anyway, there was a certain amount of authority that was involved in sacrifices. They didn't just stand there very timid, waiting for the animal to bear its own neck so they could cut it. They grabbed the animal. They got the animal into the correct posture of its head tilted back, the neck of the animal being bared, ready to have its throat sliced and blood come gushing out. I don't know, but I would guess, pretty sure, that posture was not at all natural for an animal. Those who have worked with animals could tell you, tell me, but I'm guessing it wasn't a national po natural posture. It was a forced posture. After all, even an animal is not a willing sacrifice. 
This is an important image for us to have in our minds as we read this text, isn't it? Because here, when it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, it is speaking about posture, isn't it? That image willingly entered the posture of sacrifice. Get down on your knees. Put your own head back. Don't wait for somebody to grab it and, and tilt it back with authority. Put it back. Bear your neck. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Present your own body. Do it yourself. Get on your knees. It is quite a picture, isn't it? In verse 1. I I don't know if you're going to believe this or not, but there has been great anticipation for me to get to this text, Romans 12. One could say, well, why if there was such anticipation, why did it take 100 sermons to get here? That's why I said I don't know if you'll believe me, but there, there has been. But the, the answer to that question, and I think you're going to see it this morning, is rather simple. I, I want us to grasp it. I, I want us to, to get this. Because if, if we don't get chapters 1 through 11, we're never going to get 12 through 16. It's that profound. Speaking of being profound, we said that in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that was a foundational statement for the whole book of Romans. Remember, it says this, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We said that this was foundational for the rest of the book. In fact, the rest of the book really serves to unpack these statements. If you remember, Paul is basically, what he's doing here is in in two parts. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 11, verse 36, is a section that we just finished. And we call it justification by faith. A lot of different sections within that section. But 118, all the way through 1136, dealt with justification by faith. Long section, 118 through 320, dealt with our sin and in wrath. In the next part, you get the, the remedy for that. God's provision. It was a long section, a lot of theology. Sin, wrath, God's provision in Christ, the doctrine of election, lots more that we dealt with in that section. So we get to chapter 12. And this point in the book in Romans, it has been referred to the continental divide of the book. There's a tremendous shift that takes place. There is the heading we gave to the first half of the book was justification by faith. The second half of the book, then, would be the transformed life. So if you're one of those people that writes in the margins of your Bible, I would write, write by 12.1, the transformed life, 12.1 through 15.13. And if you have more room, 
I would write continental divide in the book and just put a line there. Just, just to make it clear. H.B. Charles referring to just 12.1, which is really a, a summary then of, of what comes after. It's a transition in this continental divide. He said that 12.1 then is an ocean of truth in a teaspoon of words. Thank you, Naomi. I mean, if you, if you want to listen to somebody solid, H.B. Charles is a good name. He's a young guy, has a great story. He started preaching at a very young age. He's, a, he's young, but he's got a wealth of experience already. Uh, He's got great training, just a good guy from what I've known him. An ocean of truth in a teaspoon of words. That's so right. But think about verse 1 for just a moment. It's an ocean of truth and a teaspoon of words, but it's really one simple little command when you boil it all down. What is the command in verse 1? Give yourself to God. Give yourself to God. Pretty simple, really. But an ocean of truth and a teaspoon of words. To put it more graphic, take on the posture of a sacrifice. Give yourself to God. He's not going to take it. Give it. Give yourself to God. Yield to Him. Repent. Repent today. Repent tomorrow. Repent the next day. Repent the day after that. Give yourself to God as a living sacrifice every day. Let's talk about commands for a moment in the book of Romans. Critical things. We said that this is the continental divide in the book. It divides the front half from the the last half. The front half laid the foundation In the front half of the book, so all the way through chapter 11, verse 36, there was just a couple of commands in the book so far. You believe that? All the way through chapter 11, verse 36. Just a couple of found, I found a person on the internet that went through the entire New Testament, listed all of the commands by book. Want to know how many commands there are in the New Testament? How many you need to do this? According to this person, there were 1,236 commands in the New Testament. Matthew through Revelation. That's a lot of commands, isn't it? God says, you need to do this. 1,236 times. In Romans 1 through 11, there are four, according to this guy. In three consecutive verses... So really, and they all happen in chapter 6, really the, the same command. So except for chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, there's really no commands in chapter 11 or in the first 11 chapters of Romans. This shouldn't surprise us, really, because that's how Scripture flows the imperatives or the commands in Scripture are grounded in the indicatives of Scripture or the truths about what God has done for us. The commands in Scripture are grounded in the truths of what God has done for us. Always. What we are to do, 
then, is grounded in what God has done. And in Romans, there's an an extensive section of what God in Christ has done. It explains in great detail the human condition, that the only remedy is Christ. It isn't about what we can do, it is about what God has done in Christ. Isn't this the essence of the gospel? The gospel isn't do this or do that. That's law. That's not gospel. The gospel is look at what Christ has done for you, and then there's a challenge to a response. In one of two ways, really. Either you embrace the gospel and you respond to it in faith and repentance, or you reject it. Chapter 17 of Acts, Paul lays out the gospel, what God has done, and then he says, in essence, now this God says you need to respond. This God that created and sustains everything, who sent his son to die for death-deserving sinners, is going to judge the world in righteousness. This God now commands everyone, everywhere, to repent. Repentance isn't the gospel. It's a response to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Paul lays out the gospel. The gospel is simply this. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And then he appeared to many people. The gospel message is all about what he did and our response to what he has done for us should be faith, trusting and reliance on what he has done for us. My point is here, and don't miss it, is that the imperatives, the commands in Scripture are grounded in the indicative or what Christ has done. This is what Christ has done. Now, what is your response? Is your response to repent? To believe the gospel? Think about this for a moment. Because that's the proper response. Christ died for your sin. Because of our sin, we've been heaping up wrath. God is just. God deals with sin rightly, and we are sinners. And for God to be just, he deals with sin rightly, and he pours out his wrath on sinners. And God, in his justice, made a way that we might not pay for our sins, that we might show grace and mercy on us. He sent his own son to come and die that brutal death for death-deserving sinners, to take our place, to bear the weight of that. That's what he did for us, so that we might not bear the weight of God's justice, because that justice was poured out on his son for every person that would place their faith and trust in him. That's the gospel. Jesus did that. 
And if you would place your faith, your trust, if you would come to him in repentance, turn from your sin, embrace Christ Jesus, you could be free from sin's power, his penalty. Now, in our text this morning, 12.1, it is clear, Paul is saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I listened to one person on this text, and they noticed they noted that the word therefore was really important, but then they went on to talk several minutes about the word brothers here. And how Paul here is, is speaking to people in, in, as brothers. How he wasn't elevating himself. He wasn't using his own authority. He was saying, in essence, that, hey, just listen to me. I appeal to you. It's just one of you. I would disagree with that. You know, perhaps Paul isn't saying, hey, listen to me. I'm an apostle here. You need to listen to me. But of course he isn't saying that because he's already said it. In chapter 1. Besides that, the existence of the entire letter presupposes that Paul recognized his apostolic ministry that the Lord has tasked him with. I'm not saying that Paul wasn't incredibly humble. Paul was incredibly humble. But he was an apostle. He was tasked by God for this purpose. And he was speaking to these people with authority. The authority of of God himself. The word brothers here serves several purposes. Certainly it means brothers and sisters. Paul is, is coming alongside the believers in the Roman church. But he's also making it clear that he's speaking to believers. He's making that clear. The ones that he just got finished speaking of in the first 11 chapters. These people that God has poured his grace and his mercy on. These people that have responded to the gospel in faith and repentance. Those who are saved by the grace and mercy of God, who deceive, deserve nothing but divine wrath, but have received divine grace. Those people who are justified by their faith. He is saying, it is you. It is all Christians who are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everyone that has placed your faith, your trust in Christ, who has responded properly to the gospel. That's the point of the word brothers. The word therefore is extremely important here because it separates the divide. All of this theology... All of this indicative, this truth about God, this foundation is a groundwork for what comes next. And the word, therefore, in the text, Paul is in essence saying, I could not say to you what comes next in chapters 12 through 16 without laying the foundation that I've laid. I I couldn't say this in chapters 12 through 16 without saying what I said in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 320, talking about sin and wrath. 
I couldn't say this without the next chapters that, that deal with God's provision in Christ Jesus. Without your understanding the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you could not grasp chapters 12 through 16. It's that important. The word therefore in 12.1 draws on everything that Paul has already said. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But let me draw your word, let me draw your attention to another word here that's really important, and that is the word spiritual. I know this is toward the end of the verse, but it's it's critical that we grasp it. It's actually a very difficult word to, to translate. Different translations translate it a little bit differently. The idea is proper, reasonable, logical. So so what it tells us is that for the believer to offer their body as a living sacrifice is proper, is reasonable, it's logical, it's spiritual worship. And the only way when it can be logical, the only way that it can be, because after all, to offer your body as a living sacrifice isn't logical, it's not reasonable, it doesn't even make sense. Why would somebody do that? The only way to understand why that is reasonable, why it's proper, why it's spiritual, is to put it in its proper context. And that's the foundation of the first 11 chapters. Otherwise, it wouldn't be logical. It would be ridiculous. Having said that, we come to the command in the text. The command in the text is simply, give yourself to God. So we notice three things here. First, that we are to do this, to give ourselves to God, because we are compelled by the mercies of God. Notice that in the text. I've, I've already made this point, but, but I'm going to say it a little bit differently, just so we get it. If we, if we don't have chapters 1 through 11 down, that we are worthy sinners deserving of God's wrath, saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. If we don't get that, those these next chapters, chapters 12 through 16 in the book of Romans, will destroy you. According to my count, there are 17 commands in the first 10 verses of chapter 12. In the first 10 verses in chapter 12, there are over twice as many commands as that have come before this in the book. When we read this at the onset, just chapter 12, command, command, command. Chapter 12 isn't like anything that we've seen in the book of Romans so far. Command after command, it's, it's relentless. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, there's a command to fathers. You know it. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Let me ask you this. How does a father exasperate children? Commands. Load the commands on and you will exasperate your child. But you turn around and say, but wait a minute. Aren't commands good? Don't we... Don't we give commands to our children? Aren't we supposed to? Yes, a good parent will be strict and expect a lot of their children. And with that comes commands and rules. 
But those rules, those commands must be grounded in the mercy of the Father. If they're not, they will exasperate their children. That's the point. How do you love your child? You expect a lot of them to command them. But you make sure those commands are rooted and grounded in who you are as a father. In your love, your mercy, your grace for them. The commands here in Romans 12 through 16 are grounded in what we know of God in the 11 chapters before this. Sinclair Ferguson, in a very wise statement, said that we look first to what Christ has done, and then we look at what we must do. He went on to explain that our Christian life is severely damaged when we focus first on our own doing, on what we are to do. When we start focusing first on what we are to do, then he says it damages the Christian life. In fact, I said it before, we haven't seen commands like this in the first hundred sermons. And we focused our attention on the first part of the book for so long because we want to get it. Because if we don't get it, these commands... These next chapters will crush us. They'll do damage. The fact is, it is only in Christianity that there is a therefore like this. Christ did this, therefore I live this way. Most of the other world religions or other people say something like, I live therefore. And then we seek a reward. It's a fill in the blank. I live, therefore, do this for me. You see the difference? The therefore for most people is about themselves. We get things out of whack. Sinclair Ferguson is exactly right. We look first to what Christ has done, and then we look to what we must do. You can't get the, you can't separate those two. H.B. Charles, we mentioned him earlier talks about how the mercy here, the mercies of God here, ought to be compared with divine wrath. Now just think through this for a moment in our text. One is compelled by the mercies of God to give themselves to God. H.B. Charles said that when one repents and runs to the cross, they do so deserving of wrath. They are acknowledging they are a sinner. They deserve to be punished for that sin. We deserve to be condemned for what we have done. And we run to the cross as our only hope, our only refuge, as a damned soul. So when one repents, they do so deserving of wrath, but they come to the cross, and what do they get? Mercy. H.P. Charles says, this is the basis for what he calls the divine altar call. The mercies of God. Notice, mercies here in the text is plural, because this doesn't only happen once, does it? That we repent and we run to the cross, deserving of wrath, but receiving mercy. We receive mercy because the justice of God was bore on our behalf. Let's put it this way. I heard somebody explain it this way once. Sacrifice is the root of mercy, 
which makes mercy the flower. The root is what Christ has done for you, and then mercy is the flower on top of that. So when we're speaking of what H.P. Charles calls the divine altar call, we have these commands that are heaped on us. Our response isn't to justify ourselves, but to recognize and realize that we are sinners, meaning that we must run to the cross knowing that we deserve God's wrath. But it's at the cross that we don't find his justice, we find his mercy, because his justice was laid on another. Sacrifice is the root of mercy. Mercy is the flower. Give yourselves to God completely as a sacrifice. Give yourselves to God because you are compelled by God's mercy to do so. His sacrifice. Without mercy, it is impossible to give yourself to God. You must be compelled by mercy. That's what we have to grasp in chapters 1 through 11, and the, or the rest will be crushing. Secondly, let the mercies of God compel us to sacrifice ourselves to God. Every thought, every desire, every ambition, every dream, every opinion, every conviction that we have, all of our time, all of our resources, all of our finances, all of our skills, all of our affections, in light of God's mercy, offer it all to him. That's the text. That's the command. Offer yourself to God. In light of God's mercy, sacrifice everything for him. Sound hard and unreasonable? Probably. It does not say, offer yourself to him so that he might have mercy on you. That isn't how God's mercy works. But because he has sacrificed his son and did all of this for you, therefore, brother or sister, sacrifice yourself to God. Is it hard? Is it hard to sacrifice every desire, every thought, every ambition, every dream, every opinion, every conviction, all of your money? what you love, what God has gifted you with? Is it hard to sacrifice that? Yes, it's absolutely, it's difficult. Is it natural? Absolutely, it's not natural. Just as the posture of a sacrifice that we talked about at the onset is not even natural for an animal, how can it be natural for us? That's why we have chapters 1 through 11. Robert, McMurray, Robert Murray McShane in the 1800s, said this. He said, learn much from the Lord. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. You get it? Offer yourself to God. Your time, your money. Oh, to give up my time? My time is so important to me. I just can't spare it to teach Sunday school. I can't give up my time to start a Bible study, to go to a Bible study. My time is too valuable. 
I worked too hard for my paycheck. And I'm supposed to do what with that? I'm supposed to give how much? I'm supposed to give cheerfully? A tenth? That's a lot. It's hard to sacrifice your money. Is it hard to sacrifice your time? Absolutely it is. I mean, these are two examples, time and money, but the list goes on and on of commands that we are to do. This is why I said that commands can crush you. Try living under that. You're supposed to sacrifice your time. Can you think of areas in which you can sacrifice your time better? You're supposed to give eagerly and cheerfully. Can you think of areas in your life in which you haven't given like you should have? These are two examples. I should be doing and giving more and always we feel unworthy. You can constantly look at yourself and you can constantly get destroyed. You can constantly get struck. This is why I think it's the text is clearly saying is that sacrifice is grounded in the mercies of God, in what he has done for us. For each command that you read, go back and focus 10 times longer on what Christ has done for you and then come back to the command and it's not going to seem that unreasonable. I guarantee it will seem far more reasonable and logical and spiritual if you look at the command Say, man, I, I can't do this. I can't give this. I know I was asked to teach Sunday school. I just can't, I can't do it. I'm so busy. Go back. Spend 10 times longer than you would weighing over that in your mind, talking about what Christ has done for you as a sacrifice. Come back to that. And I guarantee your sacrifice will seem far more reasonable, will seem far more logical and spiritual. Let me give you one more example. Think about the songs that we sing. Ten out of, out of ten songs, nine should focus on what Christ has done for us and one on our intentions then toward him. On what were our intentions. We're going to give our all to you. Why? Because that command ought to be grounded in the mercies of God. And for us to get it, we need to focus ten times longer on what Christ has done for us. There is a crisis in modern worship music because we don't get this. I fear, though, that many times the commands of Scripture don't have either effect. They neither crush people nor do they compel them by the mercies of God to sacrifice themselves. In other words, they neither drive people to despair, nor do they drive them to repentance. I mean, just be honest with yourself for a moment. Is what we have said true for you? That the command is simple here in the first verse, and that is simply give yourself to God. It's an ocean of truth and a teaspoon of words. I, I get it. But do you do that? Is your life characterized by repentance? Every day. Do you do that? Are you compelled by the mercies of God to sacrifice yourself? 
by all that God has done for you in Christ, do you give yourself to God? Sacrifice yourself. I mean, have you taken that posture? Head tilted back, neck exposed. The New Testament gives another picture of a follower of Jesus, and that is a willing slave. Doulos is the, is the Greek word. It's, it's politically incorrect today. Wildly politically incorrect. The word means slave. As Christians, we are to be doulos, a bondservant, a willing slave. Do we read God's word and submit to it? Are we a slave to him? What he says, we do it no matter the sacrifice. When what is right and what God says comes up against my time, my money, my future goals, my opinions, my dreams, my aspirations, the things that we love, do we lay those things down eagerly because we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to him? We're a a willing slave, and our master is always right. I say that I fear that many times the commands in Scripture do not drive people to despair, which they should if they don't understand them in the backdrop against God's mercy, that it was what compels us. I also fear that many Christians are not compelled by God's mercy to give themselves to God either. In other words, we've created a type of Christianity that neither drives people to despair which is sad if it does, because it's drive you right to the cross. But on the flip side, it's neither characterized by repentance or sacrifice. Taking sin seriously, coming to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance and finding mercy at the cross. True Christianity doesn't lead to despair, it leads to Christ. It leads us to sacrifice of ourself, and ultimately, it leads us to rest in Christ Jesus alone. Notice one more thing. We are compelled by God's mercy to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. We're really concerned about worship today in the church. Let me put it this way. We're really concerned about feeling like we're worshiping in the church today. A lot of what we call worship in the church today is not worship. It's singing emotionally charged songs and having emotionally response songs to what the music is doing in our heart. Remember the word spiritual was difficult to translate. It means spiritual, proper, reasonable, logical. That's the idea. Now, put that all together with what we are reading here. Being compelled by the mercies of God, we offer ourselves to God to take on the posture of a sacrifice, to give ourselves to God. And this is our reasonable, our proper, our logical, right? In everything, that, in light of everything that God has done, we look at God 10 times more and what he's done for us, and then we come back to the command, then everything seems logical. And he's saying, this is worship. To offer yourself as a sacrifice to God is worship. Maybe in the church today we're not so concerned about worship after all. To worship God is to give yourself to God. It's to obey this command. Is it hard? Yes. 
Because being a sacrifice always butts up against our flesh. That's why he says, present your bodies. Giving yourself to God isn't natural. It opposes the flesh. It takes work. That's why it's called sacrifice. It takes constantly looking back at 10 times to Christ for every one time we look at ourselves. Oh man, this command I'm reading in the scripture this morning, I can't. I can't. It's too much. Then we just make ourselves feel better. Well, I'll try harder. I'll try harder. I'll put it on my to-do list. I'll work at it. It's not the proper response. That's not worship. Try harder is not worship. That's law. Go back. Study the gospel. Study what Christ has done for you. Study his sacrifice in light of his mercies. Come back to the command and it'll seem reasonable. It'll seem logical. And in fact, it is worship. We say, we say, God, you want me to do what? You want me to pray for and love my enemies? But do you know, God, what that person has done to me? Do you know what they've done? And you want me to do that? God, you want me to respect my boss? Do you know what he's like? God, do you want me to give generously and cheerfully to the church? Do you know how much money I have? Do you know what my budget's like? God, you want me to faithfully attend church? You want to make the meeting together with brothers and sisters a priority in my life? Do you know how many time, much time, little time I have with my family? My Sunday mornings are sacred, God. Don't you know that? God, you really want me to share the gospel and put myself out there with my friends and my family? Do you know how inadequate I am? What if I get a question I can't answer? I mean, I'm not good at things like that. God, you want me to train my children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord? You know I'm busy. You know all the sports, all the activities that we're involved in. Where will I find the time? God, you really want me to, and then fill in the blank. And if God has said he has wants you to do something, and crying out loud, he knows how much time and how much money and all of that things that you have. But look back at what Christ has done for you. Keep looking at the gospel, what he sacrificed, and then your sacrifice for him will seem proper and reasonable and spiritual. To offer yourself to God is your reasonable and proper and spiritual worship in light of what Christ has done for you. This is worship. We're not obedient to get something, to earn God's favor. We're obedient because it is our reasonable, logical, spiritual worship.
That's thank you for listening to this Romans sermon 12. resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad. 